Welcome to this roundup. Digital data has become a criminal commodity. As it drives the rapidly growing criminal activities, phishing, farming, malware distribution, hacking of corporate databases, espionage, extortion, and more are on the rise. Since the criminal threat from cyberspace has become multidimensional and is targeting individuals as well as entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia at a rapidly growing rate, combating cybercrime has become one of the top priorities for every nation. Now, since crimes from cyberspace can be technically complex, are integrated to geospace and space, and legally intricate, rapid advances in the functionality of information communication technologies and inherent differences between nations' technical and legal systems brings very complex challenges for investigating cybercrimes. To discuss investigating cybercrimes further, I'm delighted to welcome Julie Kleck to this roundup. Julie is a licensed investigator with more than 20 years of experience in law enforcement and professional investigations. She's an intelligence expert on the UK reality TV series, Hunted and Celebrity Hunted, and has taught investigative skills and procedures in more than 20 countries. She's the founder and CEO of Humani Intelligence Services and is also the author of the book, How to Become a World-Class Investigator. Welcome, Julie. We are honored to have you on this ground up. Thank you, Jayshree. It's an honor to be uh, here with you today. Wonderful, Julie. So it seems that there is now a very sophisticated and self-sufficient underground economy that is has originated from cyberspace in which digital data is the criminal commodity what is driving this exploding cyber criminal criminal activity to steal data and how big is it and where is it going so what we're seeing jayshree now is this pervasive new form of criminal behavior and i think it's really quite misunderstood and and this is one of the things that allows it to to creep into our everyday lives and go from you know the very low level crime that we see with you know computer facilitated and in internet facilitated crime such as stalking and identity theft right up to the high level uh interference in the democratic process and you know right up to cyber warfare where we're really seeing some very um very active military retaliation based on uh cyber crimes that have originated in different countries hacking um you know, corporate espionage, that kind of thing. So really this has evolved over the last few years and in some ways has gone unnoticed because partly it hasn't been really taken that seriously. Um, it hasn't received an awful lot of media attention. And so the sophistication of the criminals and the organizations and groups and even governments in the background has grown exponentially while the skills and the resources available to those investigating has not really grown uh, at the same rate. Uh, the motivations are not necessarily the same. Certainly uh, the financial ability of people investigating a lot of this type of crime does not reach the level of, uh, of that which is available to the criminals. Now you say that military retaliation is a, you know very common now, and uh, that brings a very important question because see this phishing and you know malwares and all that is very common. We have heard of that, but mm -hmm. when does a cyber crime becomes 
crosses a level where military decides that okay this is no longer a cyber crime and it's a cyber warfare and we need to respond as a military because it is not the military's computers that are always under attack it is you know anybody's computers corporations and you know individuals so at what point the nation you know decides that this is no longer a cyber crime but it is a cyber warfare yeah that's a great question and and it's difficult to answer there is um it's hard to determine what each country or each government determines as an act of war against their infrastructure or against their corporations and we're seeing everything from um you know we we when you look at this across every sector from communications to healthcare biotech and uh, not just military intelligence and military um attacks or attacks on military infrastructure as you say we're seeing this across every kind of sector from automated vehicles right through to communications and this critical infrastructure when that gets attacked at such a level um that certain countries certain nations uh the US included are seeing these um these large scale hacks on this infrastructure or on certain processes as an act of war and are retaliating with airstrikes uh in certain regions all over the world Yes I I hear you on that I mean critical infrastructures are under attack we have been witnessing that across nations and you know democratic uh, processes like you know during elections they are also uh, getting compromised so this is a uh, you know getting uh, much larger and much intense you know every, everybody has some agenda everybody has some agenda so uh, that is you know if you look at the nations you know overall but if you look at individuals or entities i mean they over the years they are going through uh, because of these advances in information communication and digitization technologies and the democratization of information it has given rise to the globalization of crime if we look at all these different crime you know phishing and all that where the personally personally identified information has become a commodity so if you look at healthcare data or if you look at you know uh, financial data and all it has become a commodity and it moves so quickly that the, for conventional law enforcement uh, methods or procedures or uh, officials it is very difficult to keep up so from your assessment how are they responding on this i mean this is not even just warfare activities there are lower than that but it's more widespread because everybody is under attack so is there anything done for that you know in real time to stop this kind of efforts yeah i so one of the issues that we have is that cybercrime in its various forms uh has been somewhat misunderstood uh in the coming in, in the previous years and that has allowed fairly sophisticated organized crime gangs and groups to uh come together and build what can only really be described as very effective corporations if these people were on the right side of the law they would be very successful business people as it is they're very successful criminals and the fact that they are they have this hierarchy they have a structure that allows them to you know from the top down have workers that are great at hacking and then they have their own finance department they have their own um data processing they have their own communications networks and these go all over the world we tend to it we almost shrug it off now when we get a phishing attempt or when somebody calls us and we know it's a scam 
we we shrug that off. We laugh at it. We you know we're proud of ourselves that we are able to circumvent some of these lower level crimes. But many people aren't. And if you consider the way that this is done, the low these lower level crimes are very innocuous. They they don't feel very invasive. We are, we are not traumatized. They don't make the news when somebody steals you know, $500 from our bank account. We we are personally insulted and we feel a little bit silly and we usually were embarrassed uh, because we feel like it's something we have done that has allowed these cyber criminals to, to behave that way. But if you think about it, if you think about if somebody's walking through a supermarket and they want to steal some money from somebody, the risk involved in that is very high. The risk of being caught, of somebody seeing them, of escaping with the money, even if they manage to get somebody's wallet out of their pocket, the risk of actually getting out of that is quite high. And the reward is quite low. So you might steal somebody's wallet and it may be empty or there may only be $10 in it. So the risk reward ratio is, is somewhat off. And then the chances of getting caught, if you are caught, you're going to get a criminal record. You may go to jail. And in order to make that worth your while, you may have to do that 20 times a day just to come away with $100. But if you think about that from a technical perspective and how that how technology has facilitated crime and facilitated that low level of crime, organized crime groups can hit thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people per day using automated tools. It's very low risk. So the risk of getting caught is extremely low. The potential reward is very high because of automated online banking and, and you know various other ways that we put our money out there and, uh, and our assets out there uh, available online. And then the risk of conviction and the risk of any kind of prosecution or any kind of jail term or any kind of criminal record is also extremely low. So there's very little deterrent uh, and all the availability in the world with automated tools for these organized crime groups to make millions and millions of dollars in a very low risk way um, while they sleep. And they don't, you know, they literally have to write the code and deploy it and you know, the, the bank account just stacks up while while they sleep, effectively. I mean, it's not that simple, but of course it's, you know, it's much easier than going and stealing in the traditional ways. And no, I, I hear you, because cybercrime industry is more mature than our defenses, probably. And the nature of attacks, like you said, you know, the low-level attacks, and then the, these are, there are those warfare attacks, and then those are, those are attacks, you know, where everybody's bank accounts, you know, get wiped out. So there yeah. are many different level and nature of you know attacks happening so uh, when you i mean cybercrime is globalized and it is blurring the traditional distinction between you know the nature of the threats to civilians and you know to military security and it's also not uh, something that responds to single jurisdiction because no. you know it doesn't happen from just within the nation or within the state you know either we don't even know where it originates you know quickly enough and the liability is also that he, all these networks that are to exploitation for a, that are exploited for many different you know uh, reasons and many at many different points because there are a lot of vulnerability points. So uh, 
as the investigators like you try to investigate any of this crime like you know whether it's a financial industry crime or whether it is you know uh, some other nature you know of crime military crime what are the jurisdictional challenges that you face when you address such uh, criminal activities yeah when we talk about uh, jurisdiction in investigation and particularly relating to cybercrime really we're talking about the authority to prosecute so and that is it's a very very complex and gray area and a real inhibitor when it comes to investigating cybercrime typically the jurisdiction of any crime is the region where the crime occurred now in physical crimes that's very simple because often the criminal and the uh the victim are in the same place at the same time now with cybercrime even if you are able to determine where the cybercrime occurred now this may be where the location of the victim was or it may be where the location at uh, the location where the original crime occurred now where it may well be that the crime occurred at a different time to when it becomes apparent sometimes it's months later when a crime actually becomes apparent tracing it back to where that occurred is very very difficult and then depending on the type of crime the jurisdiction may not be the point where it originated it may have originated in a place that all you have is an ip address well this you know one of the other issues with having an ip address is having a location of a computer or having a physical computer itself still doesn't put somebody behind the keyboard so all of these inhibitors are, just creates this minefield when it comes to jurisdiction where do we prosecute how is it prosecuted does a crime even exist of that nature in the jurisdiction where the crime has occurred it was it a crime at that time or is it a crime over here but not over here um does the law exist where it originated and quite often we see cyber criminals are originating crimes in jurisdictions where their activity is not a crime even though it's a crime in the place where it's occurring so this is a very complicated issue and we've seen this in certainly in the last 10 years this has become an increasing problem is that the you know le all legal matters legislation prosecution regulation is not able to keep up with innovation and the exponential growth of of technology and particularly in the areas of cybersecurity and cybercrime and so we're seeing this widening gap of uh you know using the law which is a blunt instrument to try and deal with something that is fast moving fast paced um elegant in many ways and is able to be um quickly changing as cybercrime is you know we we're dealing with issues right now and crimes that were not crimes 2 years ago because the technology doesn't exist and in 5 years we'll be dealing with crimes that we've never heard of today and it's very difficult to plan for future crimes when we're struggling to even deal with uh the infrastructure that we have right now yes very true you know it is very difficult even if you get the ip address there is a lot that still needs to be figured out so i mean uh, you you are also right about that that we don't have the tools and maybe there is a need for ai police that you know just uh, uh, crawls all across you know the internet to see you know what what is happening and then prevent where they can and if they cannot prevent it at least they collect the data so that it's easy for investigators to follow up so hopefully you know it will come in the coming years but as the 
as you uh, just said that you know the ip address is the first point but uh, investigators like you do you go after search and seizure i mean uh, what should investigators ensure as they begin their search i mean ip address is one thing but what else you know you need to focus on yeah i mean uh, you know any any cybersecurity investigation um depending on at what point you become involved as, as an investigator really factors in two things, your cybersecurity and your digital forensics. Um, you're going to be looking at where is the information? First of all, what has happened? How has it happened? How is it technically possible for that to have happened? There may be a number of ways or there may be only one way. So it's determining is this, uh, let's say, in terms of a, a corporate espionage situation, has this occurred internally or externally from the organization? did it utilize any kind of social engineering is this a purely technical issue was this cyber enabled or is it technology enabled in that or it's or is it cyber assisted so was it a human using a machine or was it did it originate with a machine that's then taken information from a human so figuring out all of these pieces first of all then you just, you you look at really you reverse engineer what has been done. So this is the originating point of the crime. Is that the location of the actual crime itself or did the crime originate somewhere else? If this is something, uh, some kind of malware attack or some kind of ransomware attack in a corporation, then potentially there is some kind of socially, social engineering issue involved, or it may just be that this is a widespread cyber attack. So really reverse engineering is important and also understanding what is technically possible and what's not technically possible is very, very important. And this is certainly one of the issues we're seeing right now in, in cybercrime investigations is lots of tech savvy young people that have huge capability online and are growing up with uh, digital knowledge and as digital natives, and then older investigators who are my generation and above generation x um and in some ways millennials who are developing great knowledge and have spent you know decades in this industry but have not grown up with this technology we've only been dealing with this in the workplace for at the most 20 to 30 years and the exponential changes and growth in the capabilities of this technology in the cybercrime field is more than most people can keep up with so merging those two skill sets together, the, the younger digital natives and the older um, investigators with that tenacious mindset that understands the process of investigation is really, really key. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why we're seeing this massive growth in cybercrime and very few prosecutions. In between 2018 and 2019, there was a 75% increase in the number of reported cyber crimes, and only one percent of those reported crimes resulted in a prosecution. One percent. It's to me, it's um, you know that it's a glaring, glaring problem, and it's only going to get worse. That gap is only going to widen as yeah, time goes on. Very true. It gets worse, and I mean, if you look at the corporations, I mean, bring your own devices. That also brings a lot of vulnerabilities because we don't know if those devices are secured, and you connect it to your, you know, internal internet or uh, intranet. Then you know you bring those vulnerabilities to your, uh, you know, network. And then if you look at healthcare industry, I mean, most of the devices are so outdated. You know, they don't have enough. Uh, 
security on themselves. So it is very easy to compromise. So there are a lot of industries that are uh, having uh, facing a lot of vulnerability. So you are right that it is a widening gap, and you know security is becoming a big problem. And uh, going back to the IP point, because I think it mm-hmm. remains very critical to the investigation. So if anything happens, you are, uh, as an investigator, you are, let's say, in uh, UK, mm. and something happens in Canada. Mm. Now, you quickly cannot, how quickly can you get the IP address of any crime? And how do you get the IP address? Is there a process you have to follow? Or is it technically possible just sitting anywhere in the world that you can quickly get the IP address? So that's a a complicated question, because it depends on the jurisdiction. So ideally, you would be able to get that IP address. But first of all, um, you know, you may not get an IP address that you can trust. It's very, very simple to obfuscate your identity online these days. So, you know, you can use um, Tor, like some kind of onion router. You can use a VPN. There are so many ways to obfuscate your identity in the first place that even if as an investigator, you're able to obtain an IP address fairly quickly, very, very difficult to figure out whether or not that's likely to be an accurate IP address, particularly if you don't know where the crime has originated, if it could be in a Middle Eastern country, or if it could be in Australia, or anywhere in the world, then figuring that out is very, very difficult. And that is only the first step in the investigation. Once you if you're able to get that IP address, and often, uh, what you'll have is if this is an email type of attack, or if this is an attack on infrastructure, the IP address that's represented in the either in the communication, if you're looking at metadata, uh, that is not necessarily accurate. That will take you maybe back to your own internal system, or it may take you back to uh, a general either internet service provider or an email service provider. So then you have to there's a fairly lengthy process of having to make certain applications with a warrant to that internet service provider or that whichever service provider that is to then give you that information. Well, that can take months. And then you have that, then you realize that, okay, well, this is just my own internal system. So now you have to take that back to the next step, which is where did this attack originate from? And it turns out that it's um, some ISP in a country um, with a completely different jurisdiction and no reciprocal rules. So then trying to have that country or somebody or that ISP give you that information, when you receive that information, it turns out it's an ISP, it's an IP address pool. And there are 10,000 IP addresses within that pool and they are all distributed. So there's no way of ascertaining who is actually behind that IP address and that can that whole process can take six months. Yes, very true. And I mean, uh, that is very critical, the timing, because most of the uh, ISP providers, they don't save the data for a long time. I mean, the, they can yeah. say they say probably for two months, three months, you know, but uh, more than that, I unless you have some kind of legal, you know, authority, they don't save that kind of data for a long time. So if it takes you three, four months in just finding out that, you know, IP address or, you know, locating them, then it's uh, by the time all the data is gone that you need for investigation. So uh, let's say, you know, a healthcare facility is under attack. Mm. 
so what should how should the computer devices be handled if the crime was device based and how would the any corporation or any entity would know where the you know crime originated is it you know based on the device or it was uh, based on the social media so how would they know immediately you know what steps to take yeah i mean it's you know detecting the crime is the first or de detecting the attack is the is the first step obviously you you touched on isps and the amount of time they they hold information and again that's different with every country australia passed a law recently they have to keep the data for 2 years but they're the only country that really have that length of time for most countries it's 6 months um unless there is a, a specific request made for a certain piece of information and then they will keep it for up to 12 months but really that creates a a very quick timeline when as you mentioned it can be very difficult to detect these attacks if you don't detect them immediately then your window of opportunity when it comes to locating that information and who's behind it is is very very small um so really yes it does come down to as much as possible prevention and very early detection very early warning of some kind of attack now in many cases the the quick attacks that you'll find out about are ransomware they are attacking you for a certain reason or a phishing attack if you can detect that um just by education so educating your staff shoring up your infrastructure so making sure that all updates are in place your technology is uh, right up to date that you have the appropriate security in place whether it's firewalls whether it's uh, only certain people being able to access certain information whether it's certain information being kept on certain servers and then you've got the issue of the transmission of data how do you protect the transmission of data because there is always a point of weakness there is doesn't matter how well you encrypt something we've shown time and time again the encrypted data still gets out into the public arena not necessarily because the encryption is broken but because there is always got to be a point of decryption and regardless of how well the person or the transmission of that information is done there is always a point of decryption at both ends and if both of those sides of that data isn't protected if both of the if the security isn't as good as the encryption in the middle then you may as well not have any encryption at all because your your data is at some point going to be in the clear and then it's probably stored in the clear as well so that a lot of people are and corporations and you know big companies are fooled into thinking that their information is safe because it says encrypted yeah. and in actual fact it's encrypted for a certain period of time within its lifespan whether it is at the at the beginning of that when it's created and encrypted sent in an encrypted email at some point that's decrypted at some point it's probably stored in the clear on a server and that's where it's vulnerable right. so we so we tend to i think there is some misunderstanding about security i think people um feel like it won't happen to them and so they don't worry about it too much or they rely on somebody else to take care of that or they believe that somebody else is being responsible for their data yes yes not only that i mean a lot of people think that uh, even if our data is stolen it doesn't matter because it's all encrypted and uh, even if the encryption is such that you know they cannot uh, break it the criminals cannot break it they can hold on to that data 
for future when you know the technologies become available to break that data so nothing is safe you know as long as soon as you lose the data you are at risk because you know there is no guarantee that if uh, that data you know when it's going to uh, get decrypted you know it could be today it could be tomorrow it could be in six months but it will you know be uh, vulnerable and you know it will get decrypted so there is nothing safe but you one point you discussed earlier was about the challenges with the resources for investigation is that you know the investigators are not technologically savvy and technologically mm -hmm. savvy people they don't have the understanding of investigation so uh, how is technology used for cyber investigation that's one point and another is that you know the challenges uh, as you mentioned with the human resources are there but do nations have necessary technology resources or do we need you know more efficient technology so we are seeing uh, more awareness, certainly around um, education in security and education in technology. And we're seeing more, uh, more and more people discussing open source intelligence and its application uh, in investigations. However, what we're seeing is more and more people um, being involved with coding or being involved in writing script and that kind of thing, which is Great. Um, and that will be the thing that helps us prevent future issues. But certainly from an investigation perspective, and I've been in the education field for the last 10 years, um, teaching governments and law enforcement and military and, uh, and Fortune 500 companies and large corporations, how to protect themselves and how to investigate using the internet. And it's actually shocking to me that, first of all, training is one of the first things to be cut when budgets are cut. It's not seen as a priority. Um, they're seen as, well, we can outsource this or this is not really a big problem. It's not happening. And we're seeing a lot of that in, in this genre is, well, you know, we're, there's barely any prosecution, so this isn't a problem. Um, I, as a side note, I was asked recently to um, to go and speak at a Crown Council uh, training day for judges and on the dark web. And one of the judges, uh, I never went and did the, the presentation because the judges got together and decided that because they had never had an investigation involving or a prosecution involving the dark web, that it wasn't a problem in, in the criminal world. And so they didn't need to know about it. So in that really speaks to a big reason why there are very few prosecutions in this area is because it, it's so misunderstood. The education isn't there for the people that need it. The people that are investigating at, the le at a high enough level to make a difference don't have the resources. And I'm talking about people in government um, where they just do not have the time. They're they're crushed under their workloads. And that's not to say they don't have the motivation or the desire to improve in this area. But the infrastructure just is not there. And, you know, the money is not there. The training is not there. And um, the commitment, honestly, is not there to cybercrime. Um, we're seeing exponential growth in cybercrime. It's now, it's now anticipated that the global cost of cybercrime will hit $6 trillion by 2021. That's less than 18 months. At the moment, it sits around $3 trillion. So we're, we're looking at a double, a doubling of cybercrime cost to the global economy at 
right up to six trillion in 2021. And that blows my mind that more is not being done because this is not just money out of our pockets. This is a problem that affects us globally and is going to turn into cyber warfare. This is not low level identity theft. This is cyber warfare. And I do not believe that globally we're taking this seriously enough. Yes, no, nobody is taking it seriously. And it's uh, the other challenging thing is cyber. We are just focusing on the electronic evidence or the networks. But because the cyberspace is connected to geospace, space, and aquaspace, I mean, we just heard a crime happen from space, right? So there right. are you know, a lot of different ways that crime can originate and a lot of different uh, infrastructure spaces can get impacted because of the cyberspace. You know, you can the satellites are at risk, the uh, critical infrastructure is at risk uh, in geospace, and, you know, everything is at risk, in fact. You know, as, as soon as you are connected to the internet, everything is at risk. So as an investigator... Or even, you know, not only investigator, but as an organization or corporation who are trying to prevent crimes or who once the you know crime happens, should they focus only on the electronic evidence or should they focus on something else also that, you know, as soon as they find out that a crime has happened, what they should protect and, you know, investigators, should they focus entirely on the electronic evidence or should they go after some other, you know, evidences as well? So my advice would be as soon as you are aware that uh, that there's any kind of breach or any kind of penetration into your systems or any kind of attempt, take everything offline and make sure that everything is preserved. So, you know, a, a forensic examination, if that's going to be done, any kind of digital forensics, they need everything in its current state. Now, that doesn't mean switch it off, because when you switch something off or when you uh, disrupt something in that way, then it could well be that you lose the evidence that's there. So and then the other thing you want to make sure of is that somebody comes in that actually knows what they're doing. Don't try and preserve the evidence yourself, but leave it in its current state and allow a professional organization to come in and mirror exactly what has been done so they're not interfering with your own infrastructure they're not interfering with your systems and that they don't create some catastrophic situation because there's an inbuilt kill switch somewhere so somebody needs to come in and and do that professionally so that the entire system can be cloned and the investigation is done on that cloned system no, I, I agree with you that, you know, professionals need to get involved, but should they not uh, contain the area like or the system that has been compromised? Because otherwise, if they keep the in connectivity on, then, you know, more systems could be compromised. So should they not isolate that area? If Yeah, I mean, as much as you can, it depends. It depends on the type of crime. Um some, if something is not happening in that moment, if we're not talking about some kind of critical ransomware situation, um take everything offline. Sometimes it's it's a it's a fine line depending on what it is that's occurring because the moment you take something offline, you will lose that trail of evidence going behind it. And sometimes if if you don't want the person that's committing the crime to know that they've been detected in order to maintain that continuity. Because as soon as you break that continuity and you, you lose that evidence, you may lose the trail of being able to detect where it's coming from. So mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a very individual uh, call, and you have to determine what type of crime, what's the level of risk. If we're talking about real risk to um, 
to life and limb, then you you don't care about the evidence. You you save the people. If we're talking about a risk to a critical infrastructure, I would also suggest that you deal with that very, very carefully. If you you cut that off and you worry about the evidence later, you know, you always save people. If we're talking about a loss of money, then that's a different matter, um, you know, depending on the amount of money. Uh, if we're talking about interruption or interference with the democratic process or with um, with general safety, then, you know, each of these things that every sector, every type of crime, the level of crime, who you suspect is involved, the seriousness of the threat, every single thing has to be dealt with on its own merits. And you have to really make that decision based on what it is that's occurring. But I would always suggest to get some advice immediately um, before you touch anything. Sure, no, of course. Yeah. Provided that, you know, the organization decides to keep the system on so that, you know, professionals can get some sense out of it before they shut down. Is it easy for the professionals to, I mean, investigators to go and monitor traffic on the internet to be able to make sense of cybercrime? So let's say, you know, an healthcare hospital, you know, is under attack and they decide to keep everything on and uh, professionals like you go in. Is, I mean, how do you monitor traffic? And is it easy to monitor traffic to see who is, you know, coming, what they are doing, all that? Is it technically possible? Yeah, it's certainly technically possible at the server level. Um, you, you need to, first of all, gain control of your traffic, of your server. If you've lost control of that, um, then that's a different story altogether. If you still have control and you're able to monitor the traffic that's coming in and out, um, that's how a lot of this type of crime is detected, by looking for those anomalies, detecting something that looks unusual or that doesn't seem right. Um, sometimes you can isolate just that that piece of traffic and secure everything else. Um, but really, when you're dealing with any kind of critical infrastructure, like a hospital, a healthcare facility, like automated vehicles, like uh, you know anything in the oil and gas industry, anything to do with defense, you, you really, really need to have a contingency plan in place for all of these potential types of attacks. And you really need to have an offline backup of all of your data so that if something does occur, everything isn't lost. You know, anybody that deals with other people's data has a responsibility to protect it. And this is becoming more and more important. Um, you know, we've seen GDPR in the UK and, and, in, the, uh, and in Europe where we have a very um, stringent responsibility to take care of other people's data and to protect the data that either we are in control of or that we process. That really comes down to the infrastructure that's processing that data. So you have to be able to have a plan in place to take that information offline, to still preserve that data and still protect it. And if you can't do that or you haven't done that, then you have a responsibility to notify those people whose data has been breached. Yes. Uh, that that has occurred of course of course now that though those uh, laws are coming and uh, it's going to help you know a lot of people uh, because that data you know will be protected otherwise you know it will bring accountability to the people who don't uh, protect it properly but as an investigator you let's say you know you keep the internet connection on uh, the organization keeps the connectivity on for you and you go in you try to uh, monitor the uh, internet and uh, are you allowed as an investigator to uh, intercept con communication or how do how does the real time monitoring happen you know as an investigator for you yeah so again it would depend on um, 
who owns the data. Um, it's a it's a very nuanced situation because it depends on where the data is flowing um, and and whose data it is and whether or not that data belongs to other people and what their expectation of privacy is. Ultimately, you have a responsibility to protect the data that you have and to protect the people, perhaps over and above your own infrastructure. So you've got to make that decision at that time. If you're dealing with other people's information or, or any kind of critical infrastructure, you have a responsibility to protect that first over your own systems. Um, so that would have to be your first priority. We would go in and we would examine exactly what's happened. But And, and it is, sometimes it comes down to a, a tough ethical call in that, do I, do I save this or do I save this? In order to investigate this, I'm going to have to allow crime to continue. I'm going to have to allow something else to be perpetrated that I can't necessarily control in order to monitor where that's coming from, in order to either stop what's happening or prevent future crime. And, you know, this is, investigation is full of these nuances. It's full of those types of very um, difficult, critical decisions in the moment. Um, and it's certain jurisdictions in the world have actually set up um, systems or processes based on their own laws and jurisdiction. So in Australia, for example, their technical laws are quite different to the rest of the world. And quite often, if you need some kind of undercover or covert work doing that would be illegal everywhere else in the world, you can, you can move the server to Australia because they're actually allowed to do that over there. And that's been done um, in cases of, uh, of widespread child exploitation, where there's been certain measures put in place by criminals to prevent law enforcement infiltrating groups. Law enforcement took control of those servers, moved them to Australia, where the laws weren't as stringent on undercover work, and were able to crack that, um, crack that entire system. So there are workarounds. A lot of it does come down to, uh, to integrity. It comes down to using the infrastructure that you have and also knowing what else is available and what can and can't be done um, based on the, the priorities of, uh, of your security. Right, right. No, I, 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 I hear you on that. Now, when a crime happens, we do not know. As an investigator, you would not know whether it's a, a criminal investigation or whether it's a civil investigation. Right. So how, how is a crime scene determined and processed and how does the digital forensic are different between a civil or a criminal investigation? So often, uh, if I'm dealing with a, an investigation of any kind, um, you know fairly quickly whether or not a criminal offence has occurred and or, or whether this is just something that is um, some kind of corporate um, wrangling or whether it's some kind of political issue. Uh, whether or not this is likely to end up in court, whether you're gathering evidence or whether you're gathering intelligence, because the measure of um, of guilt, the measure of the successful prosecution based on um, being able to prove something uh, is likely to have happened. It's very different based on uh, the level of court that you go to. So proving something beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal court of law is quite different to saying, well, the balance of probabilities is that this has occurred in a civil case. Um, so that's one of the first things I determine when I talk to somebody, if I go into an organization, if I go into 
our government department is what exactly is it that you want to do with this information? What is it that you're looking for? What is your intention? So here's what we believe has happened, or here's what this looks like. I, is this going to result in a prosecution or do you just want it to stop? So I, from my perspective and most investigators I know, you deal with it as if it will always end up in court. You gather the best evidence that you can and you preserve every piece of evidence that you can, regardless of whether or not the person says, I just want this to stop. You don't know how that's going to escalate. You don't know how it's going to progress as time goes on. So you always capture everything and deal with it in the most professional way because it may well be that when you gather the evidence now, if there is an, escal an escalation two, three years down the line, then you've preserved that evidence. So I always deal with it as if it's going to the highest court in the land and um, that protects my integrity, the integrity of the client, their infrastructure and the evidence. Yes, that's the right way to go because when you start the investigation, you don't know how deep it's going to go and how much wider it is and what impact it's going to have. So to think, you know, before the investigation starts that, you know, it's just a small investigation, that would be not wise. You need to save all the data that you can, you know, because you never know where it could end up. So as an investigator, what are the challenges, you know, you face to stop the cyber criminals or, you know, to... Uh, investigate any of the crimes that happens even after the criminals have left you know they they may have left you know some uh, footprints they may not have left some footprints so what kind of challenges you face yeah i mean I, you know right from the beginning um cyber investigations are very complex um even the very low level ones because you're dealing with often unpredictable technology so you're dealing with um you know you've got to go in and preserve something You've got to go in and find out initially what's happened, often from people that don't really know how their own technology works. So you're asking somebody about their email infrastructure. They're asking, you're asking somebody about their IT infrastructure, and they can't give you the answers. So you have to, you have to detect that right from the start. You have to, and often people don't want to take your advice because cybercrime is inconvenient. It's you're going to have to take things offline. There is going to be disruption to their business. There's going to be disruption to, uh, you know, their staff. They don't want people to know they're embarrassed. Um, so often you'll meet some resistance. And then so you've got the people that don't really understand their own problem. They don't understand what has happened. They're very fearful. They don't want to tell people they're embarrassed. They want to protect what they have. Um, and then they don't want to share with people whose data has been stolen or been compromised if that's happened, that that has happened. They've got potentially a huge loss of reputation at, at even a low level. Nobody's going to trust when, you know, if a, data, if a data breach has occurred or information has been stolen or leaked to the media or whatever it is that you're dealing with, the massive loss of trust is sometimes irrecoverable for businesses. So there's all of this to weigh up. Um, often people don't want to report it in the first place. And when they do report it, they don't want to go ahead with the investigation. Um, they don't want to provide the evidence. They don't want you looking in their systems. They don't want you going in and working with their IT department because they don't want to, they don't want you seeing behind the curtain of what they're doing in their business. Mm -hmm. They're worried about their competitive advantage. They're worried about their reputation. So so many challenges uh, when it comes to investigating cybercrime. And then when you 
if you if you do have a complainant that is on board, quite often um, they are embarrassed about their lack of security. You, as you uncover things and you tell them exactly how this has happened, you know your security is terrible and you you have done nothing to protect um, your infrastructure. You've done nothing to protect the data of all the people that you're responsible for. They are of course worried about being prosecuted um, by regulators. They're worried about the effect on their business. So it's, it's very, very difficult. These people, many of the people that I deal with just want it to stop. They don't necessarily want a prosecution. And that makes it very difficult because it means that we cannot gather evidence. We can't gather intelligence on how cybercrime is progressing and how the criminals are doing what they're doing, which is vital information for us to be able to prevent uh, future cybercrimes going forward. Yes, I mean, it's not just a reputation, it's a legal liability also, right, for them if they are uh, they have not done, uh, not taken the steps that they were supposed to take. So now another point is that, you know, AI-driven automated, you know, cyber attacks are already happening. Those cyber crimes are already emerging. So for investigators, how does it change the, you know, complexity? Because now this is all automated, AI-driven, and we do we have the AI-driven tools so that you can counter uh, those attacks and while they are happening in real time to prevent those attacks happening further? I mean, how do you, I mean, is it just, does it just end up becoming an investigation after the attacks happen or you can, in real time, you can, you know, save those uh, or, you know, prevent or defend the, from those attacks? Yeah, so artificial intelligence is really going to uh, bring in a brand new era of, um, uh, of cyber attacks uh, across the board. When you think about uh, the technology that we have in our homes and the future technology, um, any single internet connected device, whatever that is, we tend to think of our smartphones, we tend to think of our computers, we tend not to think of our smart TV or our smart doorbell or our smart vehicle um, or our, you know, gaming system or our smart fridge or, you know, all of these devices. Anything that is Internet connected is now a potential tool in the use uh, for cybercrime. And we don't think about that. So that's only going to become more and more prevalent. And it's interesting that the more and more of these internet of things tools that we see, these devices that we're bringing into our home and, and that are monitoring us 24-7 and that we're welcoming because we want this, uh, you know, this technology-assisted life. We want to be at the forefront of innovation. We want the cool things in our home. But we don't realize that a lot of these devices do not come with any kind of real security. There is no robust way of these devices to protect your your data and most people or i won't say most people but many people don't care they're not worried about that they're like okay so my tv transmits the words that i say and and it stores it on a database i'm not saying anything wrong why does it matter people don't realize that the extent of the information that's out there about them, about their infrastructure across the board is becoming so insidious that, you know, from voice printing to face printing to uh, their movements geographically, um, wherever they go in their vehicle on foot, 
we carry an electronic device with us all the time. And just about every device that is around us at any moment is monitoring what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And we're not really thinking about how that's going to impact us because it's not how it impacts us now that matters. It's what that means in five years. It's how, you know, we're, we're sending our DNA to companies to, to do checks on our backgrounds and to do checks on our, um, you know, genealogy, not caring about the fact that our DNA is the one thing that we have that is, is so specifically ours and we're giving it away and we're paying for the privilege. It's, uh, it's you know, we're, we're just going to see more and more of this. So when it comes to artificial intelligence in crime, we are in no way equipped to deal with all of these, um, all of this technology that's coming down the line. I, the gap is getting bigger and bigger. And I don't even think the majority of investigators at an everyday level are even thinking about um, what's coming in the next five years. Yes, it is going to be very complex because we already see deep fake videos. Now, you know, as uh, all the data is captured, all the, you know, voice printing happens because of all these uh, tools that we have in our homes that uh, transmit all of our communication to wherever it's being collected. It is uh, for the AI to copy that voice is going to be very, you know, easy. So we never know. We, it would be very difficult to... Uh, validate who actually said whatever said you know when any tape emerges you know for anything that uh, happens whether it's actually that was said or whether it's an ai driven uh, tape so yes it's going to get very very complex deep fake videos deep fake audios all kinds of things are emerging and uh, it is going to be very very difficult to stop so for uh, investigators are there any guidelines uh, on cybercrime investigation or is it you know every investigator follows what they want to follow so you know, really, the the principles of of investigation. I mean, we follow. We tend to follow. Certainly, those of us that do open source intelligence and um, investigation, we follow a what we call the intelligence cycle, which is really a, a military based process for gathering, analyzing, and and sharing information that we find uh, not just necessarily technically, but but in every way. But we we apply it. Um, most frequently when we're talking about digital information. So there is something of a loose process, but it is very outdated. Um, you know, when we talk about um, the, the data that's, that's out there, we talk about two main uh, elements, and that is the verification of the data and the verification of the source. So that is those are the elements that really keep um, intelligence or really turn information to intelligence. So processing that information. So if you think about deep fakes, um, there was a case recently where the uh, CEO was convinced using a deep fake uh, voice uh, of an investor, he was convinced to transmit $220,000 into a bank account um, based on a voice recording. And, uh, and it turned out to be a deep fake. It's the first AI-driven deepfake um, fraud that we've seen. And it's the beginning of a new era. However, um, in all of my investigations and in everybody I investigate with and anybody I, I mentor or teach in terms of investigation, that these are the two key elements. And that is source evaluation and verification, data 
evaluation and verification. You, and the two are separate. You have to verify the source and verify the data. And if there is any doubt, um, and I use a scale, so a, you know, a, num a numeric scale, which actually comes originally from the police, um, to verify those things. And if you cannot verify with maximum um, certainty that the that both are genuine, then you can't call it intelligence. You can't call it evidence. So yeah. that's um, you know I that is always my encouragement to investigators is you have to verify the source and you have to verify the data. And if you cannot, if there's any doubt on either of those things, then you have to dig into that further. You can't um, you can't end an investigation with ambigu uh, you know ambiguity and evidence that's not 100% confirmed. And this is where artificial intelligence is going to make that very difficult for us because it's so, um, it looks so real. The, the products of artificial intelligence are so real and so accurate. Um, they're better at replicating certain human elements and certain actions than humans are. And I think we're going to see increasing problems as um you know as the as time goes on because trying to verify where information comes from is more difficult than ever because it's much easier than ever to hide and obfuscate your identity and the origin of information and trying to determine how something has been created and whether or not it's real um, is also very difficult and it may well take the development of ai security tools to um to investigate AI-originated AI crimes. Yes, it's going to be very complex, you know, because the human identity is going to get very complex. Now, as mm -hmm. like you just mentioned before, that, you know, when we send our day, uh, DNA to for analysis, all that uh, data is stored in the digital format and it gets transmitted, you know, in digital format. So, and uh, once, you know, the, all these biobanks that are emerging, their security is not... Uh, where it should be. And when the digital data, I mean, this DNA data gets transmitted on the web, it's very easy for it to get compromised. And, you know, uh, once you capture that data, you can misuse it for anything. So the investigation is going to become very, very complex process in the coming years because it will be very difficult to know what is real, what is not real, what is uh, AI driven, you know, and uh, how to, you know, counteract that because all these algorithms are transparent. There is no way to know what who is actually behind that, you know, whether it's a human or whether it's an algorithm. That is the reason, you know, we uh, we are promoting that we need a algorithm naming and identification system because without that, it's going to get so complex for every you know variable that we have to protect for every you know fact uh, type of data that we need to protect. So, but it's a you know it's a something that we have to keep working on. As we go forward, there are a lot of uh, challenges coming our way. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners and what recommendations would you like to give the investigators all over the world? Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, uh, first of all, about the algorithm naming um, system. We are, we are going to have to do things differently in the future. Um, we have to really try and anticipate what risks and what threats are coming to us, given the technology and the projection of where technology is going in the next five to 10 years. And we have to start putting more effort and more focus into building tools that are going to prevent those kind of crimes rather than deal with them reactively at the end. Because I think our 
Uh, I think we've already shown, we're already seeing that there are such a small number of prosecutions. And that's partly through to, uh, partly because of ignorance, partly because of uh, the infrastructure is not there, partly because the money is not there, partly due to jurisdiction issues. So prevention is going to be key in these net as we go forward. We have to use the technology that we have to secure our data in, in all its forms. We have to be able to protect and take responsibility for protecting not just our data, but the data that belongs to other people and ensure that we are undertaking stringent uh, verification of sources and data and keeping an open mind um, and, and not considering it somebody else's problem. This is all of our problem now. You know, we all have a responsibility. It's our data. We have to, we have to shed this idea of, well, I, you know, not doing anything wrong, so I have nothing to hide. That's we're not in that world anymore. Yes. You know, this is we're we need to look at this from a bigger picture, global perspective, and every single person needs to take responsibility. And investigators have to take responsibility for educating themselves on technology and um, being responsible for um, sharing their knowledge, for collaborating and seeing this as a, as a global issue and a more strategic problem. Very true, excellent. You know, that is a very right advice because we all are accountable for our individual and collective security. So having said that, thank you so much, Julie, for participating in this round of today. You're we appreciate your thoughtful insight on cybercrime investigation, and I'm sure our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today on how cybercrimes are investigated and what are the challenges and where we need to focus on. So even if a single crime is investigated properly based on the discussion we had today, this discount of dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Shishri. Wonderful, Julie. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence, and transformation happening across cyberspace, aquaspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict, it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together for more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup videos or hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundups, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.